tomorrow, Stephen Harper lets everyone know the makeup of his new cabinet. Who's in, who's out, and how those decisions are made can be crucial to the way a government performs. So how are the decisions made? For that, we've convened the insiders again, two key political operatives who've been inside for these kind of decisions in the past. Jamie Watt and David Hurley. You know, there must be a lot of Tory MPs sitting there tonight in their homes in different parts of the country waiting for the phone to ring because it's traditionally the night before a cabinet shuffle that uh, new members going in get a phone call. Uh, if it hasn't rung by now, is it too late? Okay. I think if it hasn't rung by now, Peter, they can go to bed or they can go out and uh, have a drink to console themselves. Uh, I think the people that are going to be called tomorrow to the new cabinet, they've got the call. Now, it's not that there haven't been kind of last-minute decisions in the past and, uh, and, and changing the ideas late at night the night before. David? Yeah, I think, uh, you know, to agree with Jamie, I think that it's unlikely you're going to be the Minister of Finance uh, if you haven't heard yet uh, tonight. But I'm not sure that I'd leave the phone entirely. There's still lots of, <laughs> there's still lots of background checks uh, that could go awry on people that were supposed to be in and things that could go wrong. And right up until Rideau Hall, I'd hold out uh, some hope. But I think that most of it's uh, cast in stone right now. Are sure. there real serious background checks? I can remember talking to a very, very senior RCMP person mm -hmm. and asked them exactly that and they said look you know they don't call us till the night before and there's not a lot we can do at that point to check somebody's yeah. background beyond the obvious so you know have they ever been charged uh, they got outstanding warrants or whatever but beyond that there's not much they can do well in in when Paul Martin was putting together his cabinet I know that what uh, his team of people did was they had PCO doing background checks on everybody that was eligible and a contender that's the Privy Council Privy office. Council office they had the RCMP doing legal background checks and they also had very senior people uh, were part of Mr. Martin's team that would interview personally every one of the prospective people to look for anything political personal anything that might come up and I know that some of them have memories from those conversations that they'll take to their uh, grave <laughs> 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 and, and also, Peter, now the vetting for candidates is tougher than it used to be in the past. So there is a head start on these people because there's a pretty rigorous vetting process. We saw in the last election where that sometimes goes wrong, but that's also in place as well. But uh, as David says, the, the bigger pool is actually scrubbed or vetted than actually make it through the door. All right. Well, aside from the obvious things like competence and where they come from in the country, trying to evenly split the cabinet from different parts of the country. What is a prime minister looking for when he's making that decision to put somebody in the cabinet? Well, uh, he's looking for that balance and that political balance and to make sure that he makes all those myriad constituencies happy. But he's also looking for chemistry because this is a decision-making team. And this is a team that's going to have to sit around that table and make decisions together. And so that's one of the most important things he's looking for in addition to the competency, geographic, gender and regional balance as well. David? Yeah, and, and there's quite a wide range of factors that makes this very complex. You have to deal with people who have constituencies in your political party that have to be respected. Brian Mulroney may not have thought on his own that Joe Clark merited a senior cabinet post in his government, but he had to give him one because Joe Clark represented a lot of people in that party. And most parties face or, uh, that kind of uh, organization that have people who have standing who will demand to be heard. The second thing is that you need to uh, you need to f have geography fit uh, the specific posts and so it becomes a bit of a maze as some people may have been the right choice the optimal choice for a job but then they really have to fit somewhere else because they've got to fill a hole and so 
once you get outside of your core of the people that are indispensable and have to be in certain jobs, a lot of this is a bit of a movable feast about what works. You know, you mentioned the 84 uh, cabinet of Brian Mulroney, his first one after his majority government win. Uh, it raises another interesting topic. Just a, a, a quick look back here. L look at this footage from 1984. Brian Mulroney being sworn in now as Prime Minister, the 18th of this country, by Gordon Oswald Aston, the Clerk of the Privy Council. Prime Minister Mulroney won the largest majority in Canadian history, and now he'll head the largest cabinet to go with it. There'll be 40 around the cabinet table. 40 around that cabinet table. I was Jason Moskowitz reporting. Um, when Stephen Harper brought forward his first cabinet, 2006, there were 27 members checking there. 38 at dissolution here, 40, huge number for start. Does size matter in the issue of making these decisions about what the cabinet's going to be? You trying for smaller, or are you trying for trying to satisfy so many people that it's right. going to be big? Well, that's exactly the balance, right? I think at this time in, the, in our economy, when we've got an austerity uh, time ahead of us, I think smaller would be better. But getting to that smaller is very difficult. Uh, one former premier told me that he made his cabinet by making up little name places, folders, and putting them around his dining room table, and always ending up with three in his hand that he didn't, he didn't have a spot for, and they never made it, right? So mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a tricky job, this guy, guys. Yeah. And the only sole prerogative left for a prime minister, now the election dates are fixed. Right. David. I don't uh, really think that uh, we're ever going back to a day of really small cabinets, and everybody who starts out with a smaller one than went before tends to have them creep up in size, yeah. as, as you uh, illustrated with Mr. Harper. And I think that the fact of the matter is, is that cabinets have stopped being really deliberative bodies, and they've started to be more representational bodies, which is why you see that every province has to have at least one person in, and there have to be so many, uh, there has to be gender balance, there's got to be all sorts of different balance, and it's all geared to make sure that all of the stakeholders and voices in the country are heard around the cabinet table. And so what they've done is they've created subdivisions of operations committees or priorities and planning committees that get together in smaller groups, actually deliberate and make decisions, which then get ratified by the larger cabinet. Uh, but it's sort of a mini caucus now as much as it is anything. And, and that's gone too far down the road to ratchet that back now. Imagine if the prime minister were to announce that Newfoundland or Saskatchewan doesn't get a minister. It just wouldn't be acceptable, even though he was dressing it up virtuously as I'm going for a right. smaller cabinet. Right. Representation is necessary. He's got lots to choose from from Saskatchewan because 13 of the 14 members are conservatives. Mm -hmm. From Newfoundland, there's only one. Now, is this a slam dunk? Well, Should he be picking his limo out? Or a... It's a pretty lucky day. I don't think anything is a slam dunk with this prime minister, but I'd say he's in pretty good space. All right. That's Peter Panashway uh, from Labrador. He's the conservative member there. Um, what He'll can go? Uh, yeah, <laughs> I think we can. We're, we're assuming he's going to be there. What um, what can go wrong on a night like this, in terms of making those final decisions? Do you? Uh, well, Mr. Do you recall something, Mr. Mr. Harper uh, is a. It seems to me that he came to his job owing less to fewer people than most people come to these jobs. Uh, most people become leader of their party by accumulating a lot of support in the caucus. One of the ways they accumulate a lot of support in the caucus is that people project their dreams onto that person and say, if that person gets there, then my ship will have arrived as well. And so really, uh, you're making 40 people very happy, but you're crushing the hopes and dreams of many other people that had really counted on you, thought you were a friend, thought you were in their corner. Maurizio Bevilacqua thought he was going to
to be Paul Martin's Minister of Finance. When Paul Martin asked him to be his parliamentary secretary, not even putting him in the cabinet, he got up, walked out of the office, slammed the door, and they never spoke again. Phew. You remember things like that? Well, I do. I mean, one of the ways you, you tell people about uh, their admission into cabinet is you call from the bottom and you start calling all the way up. And uh, I remember trying to find one person who was told to uh, be by the phone so that a certain premier could make the call, and uh, they were nowhere to be found. And from that day to this, they never knew how close they were being uh, to being in the cabinet. Until now. Until now. <laughs> <laughs> and you're not going to tell us who that was. the dog. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, wrong time. All right. All right, gentlemen, thank you. We'll see what happens tomorrow. It should be fascinating.